Welcome to the Perp Web Podcast, hosted by Joe Bosch. And the slides are yours. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> we're gonna, we're gonna... My sandwich is growing mold. Okay. <laughs> All right. Well, we're going to talk about uh, a little bit about STS database, uh, predicting morbidity, mortality, and cardiac surgery. Um, and we'll, we'll, we'll move pretty good through this. So again, um, how do you risk stratify in adult cardiac surgery? I'm sure you've heard your surgeon say my patients are sicker than everyone else's or patients are sicker in general. Um, so anyway, how, how do you quantify that? Um, there's been a lot of tools out there over the years. I remember running some Parsonet scores not too long ago. There's something out there called the Euroscore. But, but how do you uh, standardize and how do you compare apples to apples and how do you kind of put some structure around, around this? So the Society of Thoracic Surgeons, established in 1964, um, again, trying to deliver quality of care, collaboration, education, research, advocacy. So they started a, a database. Uh, first, the first was adult cardiac. Now they have uh, databases for congenital, um, thoracic, and on and on. But the first one was uh, adult, 1989. And it was started as a quality improvement initiative. So let's, let's start collecting some data. So to date, uh, I looked on their website a couple of days ago, uh, about 6.9 million patient records in that database. And each of those records, uh, and, I, and I do a little bit of abstraction in STS in adult cardiac, so I can tell you there's over 900 data points in each record. So not, of course, wow. not all of them get filled out depending wow. on the type of case. But there's a lot of data being um, put into that database. And so you can only imagine um, that that database is considered a very rich uh, place to go for research, for any type of trending. So it's, it's very important. Um, and they actually started, because of all that data, you can obviously run lots of statistics, statistical models, you can start doing some things. So they started developing risk models in 2008. So just to kind of give you a little bit, and I'm sorry for the numbers on that slide, oh, they're a little hard to read, but um, this is participation in the adult cardiac database, and you can see um, as of summer of 2019, 165 participants, United States, you've got Canada, you've got some international going on there, and if you look at the uh, map, the darker colors are representing over 100 different programs or participants. As you can see, Texas right up there um, with California in terms of the amount of participants, and uh, followed closely by uh, Florida, Illinois, I believe Pennsylvania. So again, uh, a lot of participation. I believe that um, STS will claim that they are capturing about 90% of all cardiac surgery being done. Yeah, I think there's 1,150, about 1,150 programs in the United States oh, that so it's do open-heart surgery. Mm -hmm. okay. so, so, there, so almost all of them are, are submitting data into mm -hmm. this database. So it's, it's pretty robust and very representative of what's going on. So right now, if you were to um, look in the adult cardiac surgery database, they will, they will pull out seven different categories that you can risk model in. So again, isolated CAB was first. Um, it's still the majority of what's being done in, in adult cardiac surgery. Then uh, isolated AVR, 
AVR plus cab, your mitral valve replaced by themselves, then with cab, and then isolated mitral valve repair and repair with cab. So those are your uh, seven risk models. Again, of course, we know a lot's going on in heart surgery besides those seven, but that's uh, what they have collected data on and have been able to make risk models out of. So those are our seven. So what happens with that is through, through risk modeling and risk adjustment, the, the you know, world of statistics, which gets a little overwhelming at times, even you know, for those of us that kind of like numbers a little bit, they, can, they have been able to come out with uh, rating your program, mm -hmm. a star rating. Okay, I know you guys have all heard about it. Um, your hospital probably knows their star rating. It's very important. Um, and this is kind of how it's made up. So if you look over on the left there, it's a, you've got an overall rating. Uh, two, uh, three is the best, one's the worst. And you have four domains that, that make up that rating. Okay, so that's what the bottom four all get rolled together and give you an overall score. So you've got a medications for isolated cab, use of mammary isolated cab, then the absence of morbidity and absence of mortality. So that's how those are starred individually, but then all rolled up to give you an overall. Okay. And if uh, just to make it easy, uh, three stars it means you're performing significantly higher than the STS mean. Two star, you're average, doing just the same most everybody else. One, you're, you're performing significantly lower. Okay? okay. So those are your, so those, that's the star rating. If you want to break it down and know what those domains look like, obviously we know what mortality is, but um, sometimes it depends. It's uh, 30 days post-procedure or during the same hospitalization. So you can be hospitalized longer for 30 days, still have a, you know, pass away and that would still be a mortality even if it was at day 65. It was the same, you didn't check out and check back in. Right, it was the same hospitalization. And then for your morbidities, the five are renal failure, prolonged ventilation, reoperation, stroke, and deep sternal wound. Again, a lot of um, definition behind what that means that you can find on the SDF website. Then use of the mammary, there is some exclusion criteria for that, obviously uh, reoperation couple of other things, uh, mediastinal radiation. Mm -hmm. Question from Joe. Just very quickly, can, can you say that again? So if you're in, if you have a procedure and you, you are in the hospital for 30 days and you do not die, but you die on day 32, it is or is not a mortality? If you've been discharged yeah. and it's day 32 after your procedure, that will not but if okay. it's day 32 and your hospital and stay, still, still in the, the hospital, then it counts. So that doesn't, so it's only, you would have to be discharged like to an LTAC or to Correct. some other hospital within the hospital. Like I've seen that before where they've taken patients who were in the ICU. They're not stepped on. It's actually a hospital within the hospital. Oh, like right. I've seen that model. And they transfer the patients in the same hospital, but it's a different hospital technically, same building and they move them to that unit and, uh, yeah. Like an inpatient rehab. Yes. Yeah. Uh, so that, that's considered a discharge. Okay. Mm -hmm. So even though it's in the same facility, they've mm -hmm. been discharged. Okay. So okay. if that, so there's, there's some nuance in there mm -hmm. and people would argue maybe some gamesmanship skewing. going on there. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> skewing. Okay. Yeah. You answered yeah. that question. Yeah. So. Just, just so you know, has several discussions around is something a mortality or not mm -hmm. over yeah. the years with, with, uh, 
physicians and clinicians. And then your medication bundle for isolated cab, it is required to have a beta blocker within 24 hours of incision, to be discharged on one, to have a post-op anti-lipid prescribed and antiplatelet. And that antilipid does need to be a statin. Of course, there is contraindication um, documentation that can exclude that, but those are required unless contraindicated through documentation. And it's a one and done. You miss one of those, you fall out in that entire bundle. So the pre-op beta blocker question is, that's why it's always asked, right? And if it's not yes. given, it's because they're bradycardic. Right. And if that's documented, that's an exclusion. Okay. If the patient's emergent, that's excluded. So, I mean, there, there's a lot of nuance, yeah. but I'm just kind of giving you the facts. Right. Gotcha. <laughs> but we can certainly... If, if but I mean, I know that's something we all hear. We may right. not know about the other things, but we I definitely hear that one. Because it's, it's considered kind of low-hanging fruit um, in terms of, you know, anesthesia. Well, there's a lot of pushback that I'm just giving a gram, um, you know, milligram. Yeah. What am, I, what am I doing? I'm just satisfying a metric here. Yeah. You know, am I really doing anything? Yeah. But it's, it's been around for many, many years, and it doesn't seem to be going away. So it's mm -hmm. still required. So then of, of those domains, you can see where the weight is. And if you look at <laughs> mortality, is 81% of that weight. Mm -hmm. So again... Um, you've got to be doing really, really well to get a three stars. Mm -hmm. About 5% of all programs are able to achieve that from um, one reporting period to the next. So it's pretty rare air as we describe it. Mm -hmm. You can see morbidity is 10%, the mammary is seven, and medications around three of your That's overall right. scar. So just to look, these are some from the latest national reports. It's a little busy, but it's taking all seven of those risk models that we talked about, and it's showing across the five morbidities, and then if you would have mortality and morbidity together, which most of us would probably argue that it's, if you have a lot of morbidities going on post-op, it's probably going to result in a mortality. Okay. Yeah. So, um, and if you look at the different, I've just highlighted there what, what the risk-adjusted rate is for isolated cab. Mm. So you can see mortality is around 2.3%. Mm -hmm. If you're going to have morbidity or mortality, so any one of the five or, or a death, that's a little higher because obviously you're combining all those together, mm -hmm. about 11%. Stroke at 1.3, prolonged vent at 7, renal failure at 2, and re-op at uh, about 2.5. So it looks like, if I'm reading this correctly, the mitral valve with a cab has some of the highest. Yes. So you're looking at some of your riskiest or highest risk cases is yeah. mitral valve. Mm -hmm. I've always hated mitrals, mitral cabbages. I have hated them for as long as I have lived. Well, there's your reflection. And there's, right there. and there's the them. proof. No, yeah, nobody they, they likes tend them. not to do, they have problems. Yeah. They're, they're, they're a very complex, risky group. Mm -hmm. Okay, so just showing you those. And of course, um, as you can see, as you start adding things, those numbers get higher, mm -hmm. except for maybe mitral, mitral valve repair on its own. Yeah. Looks like if you can get a nice mitral repair done, things usually go pretty well. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So we've, we've had the on-pump, off-discussion. Here we go. Oh, here we go. A here we go. <laughs> so if you were just going to look at this database in terms of you know, supporting your, your stance, um, it's really, and I looked it up yesterday, uh, it's, less, it's really around 10% now of all ISOCAB being done in the database is being done on pump. Very low, not, not very high. 
really kind of no, top. It used to be up to 30, over 30 yeah, percent at one it, time. It, it was pretty high, and then it's just steadily kind of declined. Yes. And so, there, you know, we all can talk about papers we've read. We can all cite um, papers that show there's really no difference. So in the database, you actually can tease this out between on and off. And if you look at all those things we just looked at, those morbidities, mortality, you can see that on and off are just side by side. Mm. So it kind of proves the point that there can, there really is considered maybe no difference. Maybe that's why we don't see it. I think there's a lot of talk about concern of incomplete revascularization in off-pump because it can be technically challenging. So do you do all the graphs you should do mm -hmm. or do you not? Um, I think most surgeons, and if there's any on the call or out there that want to chime in, um, it's a tool. It, it's something to have in your toolbox. There's a patient that could benefit from that for sure, um, but maybe not across the board. Mm -hmm. And I, I think just looking at the database alone is kind of showing that, that surgeons are, there could be those niches where they're doing it all the time or it's the majority of the time, but 10% of all, it's, it, it's obviously not being done as often as mm -hmm. we thought we were worried that it would be <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> when it came out and we, everyone was doing it. So mm -hmm. it's not a higher incidence of stroke? No. I'm so surprised. No, but when it was up in the 30% range, when they were doing a lot of them, I think these numbers are based on 2020. Right. So these are not based on when they were. So I think Remember that's when it was why like cutting we edge? saw oh, the I know. shift yeah. that's when I left was the because you saw actually increased numbers of renal failure. You saw increased numbers of stroke. It was actually not as good. And now that the numbers have decreased, the ones that are being done are highly selective, right? And they're only being done by people who are. Look, I mean, I think I don't know who said it, yeah. but you know, <laughs> cardioplegia is what opened the door for uh, almost, you know, for a lot of other surgeons to do cardiac coronary bypass surgery. Cardioplegia is what allowed the slower surgeons because in the past it was intermittent cross clamping. Uh, you you had to be fast. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's ischemic arrest. I mean, right. true ischemic arrest, not cardioplegic protected arrest. Right. So, you know, cardioplegia allowed that. And then, of course, you know, off-pump is very similar. It's technically much more challenging. Mm -hmm. I just, I've, I've done videos side-by-side side and watched a surgeon do an anastomosis, lima to the LAD with an, a cardioplegia tart still, and one where he's doing it off-pump with the stabilizers and literally showed him the two videos, and he, I'm serious, stopped doing it off pump. It was so dramatic. You have to have a steady hand. It's not, it's, it's, it doesn't behave for you. <laughs> right, and I, I mean, it does, it's, it's really, this just tells you it doesn't really seem to make a difference mm -hmm. right now. Now, so, yeah. yes, now. and I agree with you now, that's 2020, yes. So prediction. So, so there is something out there called an STS risk calculator. You could go to it right now and play along with me when we get into our scenarios. Um, you do have to know some things about the patient that, you know, some lab values and things like that. But um, it's, it uses the same risking algorithms that the STS is going to use in your analytics to give you risk-adjusted rates. So it, it really is uh, a similar animal or a similar way to, to risk stratify patients. So 
There is one for all seven risk models that we talked about. So you could plug in any of those seven, and if you knew enough right about your patient, you could you could plug that in and get a number. Okay, and it really is based on everything up to wheels in the operating room. So it's a preoperative okay. assessment. And again, that over here on the left, that is right off their web page. If you click on those links, you can see the intense statistical modeling that goes into developing them, how many years of data they took to, to come up with these, and step-by-step -step instruction on how to use it. Okay, so it, it is out there. It's, it's not proprietary. Anybody can go to this website and run this. So why don't we run one? Okay. So, yes, let's run so one. So everybody so. has to go get, so the people online, I need to tell them to go to uh, RiskCalc, R-I-S-K, Hey, uh, can you put that on uh, uh, on FaceTime and uh, the other thing? RiskCalc.sts.org. On the right page. Oops, I'm sorry. Yes. It, it, correct. It, it risk. It never happens. <laughs> risk C A L C. Dot. No problems down here. I got it. S. Yeah, ready. T S. Well, Joe, this could be dude. RiskCalc.sts. Sorry. Okay. Good job. Okay, right. I got it. So you see that your first thing, it's not on this slide, but if you're on that uh, app or you're on that um, calculator, you, you have to select which surgery you're talking about first. So I, I did isolated calf. So here's the information for that particular patient, 65-year-old uh, Caucasian male, He's got some 100 kilos, 170 centimeters, he's got diabetes, he takes an oral for that, metformin, hypertension, former smoker, social drinker, which is uh, in the database considered two to seven drinks a week. Oh. I know, I'm kind of like, okay. What happened? Uh -oh. Uh -oh. <laughs> We're learning about ourselves here. I'm like, don't, don't judge. Um, <laughs> he's had a PCI in the past, he, he does take some Plavix, but that's been discontinued on admission, and he's uh, on an inhaler for some asthma. They diagnosed him with non-STEMI. Go ahead. I have a question. On mine, why is it asking me who's the payer? That's part of it. Why would that, that make change the mortality? Yes. Really? Ooh, so you, if you're worried about paying for your own surgery, you're no, more stressful? No, but I mean, do you see a doctor? I mean, are you getting care? Are you getting care? Uh -huh. That makes sense. If you're not getting okay. care, you're yeah. probably okay. coming in pretty yeah. far along in some gotcha. of these I got diseases that are hurting. You, yes, you don't even know you untreated underlying yep, um, comorbidities. Yep. Okay. Diabetes, hypertension, hypertension you name it. You name it. Okay. Insured people do better. Yes. It's true. It is. And it's they true. and they are asking for that information. That's part of what they what we fill out every time on a, is who's your insurer? Mm -hmm. And it, and do you have insurance? So he's uh, he comes into the ER, he rolls in for non STEMI, they take him to the cath lab, he's got three vessels including left main, a little trace MR, and an EF of 55%, and there's some labs right there, okay? And mm -hmm. so if you're moving through, and there's some, there's some more questions you're, you're getting asked on this mm -hmm. that you can either say no or, or move past. Yeah. And if you run the calc, you see he's got 0.785% chance of mortality. And then if you, and you can see all the other things are risked out too in terms of renal failure, stroke, wow, vent. Wow, that's so cool. That's really cool. That's really cool. And, and if you notice length of stay, 
Are they, you know, this patient is 56% guaranteed <laughs> that they should be out of the hospital in six days or less. Oh. Predictable. Predicted. Predicted. Yes. Yeah. And, and then a 2% chance of whoa. being in there a long, longer time. Longer than 14 days. Longer than Reoperation, uh, that's a bring back? Yes. So six days is short length of stay. Mm -hmm. 14 days is long length of stay. So what's between 7 and 13? Or what is Anything seven over and six is long, isn't inclusive. it? Well, no, it, for long it has to be over 14. Oh. Uh, it's just going to be average. Okay, oh. so not short. Not short, short is a benefit. Short, shorter length of stay gives you points. You would Good hope points. so. That, that's what our surgeons say all the time. Why don't I get extra bonus? Yeah. <laughs> okay, sure. I got it. Bonus points. So, so, there's, so there's that. So there's, for this patient, things are kind of looking like, all right, that, that doesn't look so bad. And if our overall mortality rate in ISOCAB is 2%, this guy should do okay. I mean, if you're just looking at risk calculation. Mm -hmm. So if you were speaking about this, uh, what would you say their score is? Cause do they have, am I missing it? Do they get an overall score? Or is it just broken down by category? It's just broke. Well, I would think your really your overall is morbidity or mortality. Okay. You know. That's seven and a half. And if I don't mean to interrupt, but morbidity, that morbidity that you have or mortality, that's major morbidity, right? Those are those five that we did talked the renal, about. Right. The, the renal, renal, the stroke, stroke. Mm -hmm. yeah. whatever. Yeah, that's um, a those question. Are, those are those. <laughs> so you know how sometimes you hear uh, patients coming in, but then uh, they're too high of a risk, the hospital has declined to allow that surgery. What Are they using these types of scores or they have their own scoring? They're probably using this, and I'll get to how, okay. how you can use this um, in your practice or a hospital. Maybe they've got a committee or there's mm -hmm. kind of things like that. We're okay. going to get to that. But I want to show you what happens when you start kind of playing. So what if we just change this patient's gender? Hmm. Oh, she Whoa. went up a whole percent, right? She went up about half percent. Half percent. Okay. In, in mortality. In mortality. But again, everything kind of moves up. So just being... Um, a female and not a male changes things. Wow. Okay, so just that one change brought it, everything up a little bit. Her, her length of stay for short goes down. Um, everything else goes up a little bit. So that's kind of some things you can do with this. Let's, let's go back to our male, but let's take his EF down and let's double his creatinine. Now look at his score. Oh, wow. That has more than doubled. Okay, mm -hmm. so there are things that are driving the score, and that's what I'll get to that in terms of you know discussing cases and if you want to put any type of um, structure around using risk scores. And then let's let's take that for the same. Let's just change the gender again. Took the EF down, doubled the creatinine, and made it a female. It's even higher. Mm -hmm. So you're just moving, moving on up. So again, you can you can go into this calculator anytime you want if you know these things. Um, what, why do we do it? What? It's not really a game. But yeah. I mean, it's something interesting to watch. Yeah. yeah. So in some, I know in the healthcare system I work in, we do something called pre-op risk assessment, okay. which we all refer to as PORAs. So um, this can be done. In advance, hopefully, um, if you've got all this information, again, it gets a little um, 
challenging if you've got a CAS that's been done elsewhere, if you don't have um, ECHO that's uh, readily available. Um, it can be done on-site uh, by a nurse practitioner, a PA, uh, the surgeon themselves, um, or um, an instruction team that already works in this database all the time. We know those definitions kind of by heart, so we don't really have to look and say, you know, it's renal failure one times creatinine baseline. You know, it's mm -hmm. kind of, you know what those things are. Mm -hmm. And then you can set your thresholds that require a discussion. So, for instance, um, at, in our healthcare system, at most facilities, the threshold is 5% so for mortality. Okay. So if someone's going to risk out at 5 or higher, um, that, that score, first of all, once it gets run, it's, it's sent out. Surgeon gets it, cardiologist gets it, um, maybe um, the nurse practitioner gets it, hospital. There can be any array of people that see these scores. So they get used to looking at them, they get used to kind of you know, seeing what's high, what's low, and they can, we, in our health system, have left it to the facility to determine their line in the sand. Mm -hmm. But over time, sometimes it changes, especially based on outcome. Mm -hmm. So, for instance, we'll take this, for instance, at 5%. So if someone is at 5%, then usually there is a discussion. So you've got to get the, the surgeon on the phone, you're going to get cardiology on the phone, going to get the person who maybe ran the score on the phone to talk about why is it so high? Uh, what's, what's driving the score? Is it because they've got chronic lung disease that's severe? Their FEV1 is in the toilet. It's very low. Uh, is it really cardiac? Um, you know, the EFs is terrible. Um, is it renal? Their creatinine is too high. So that just brings a discussion about doesn't mean you can't do the surgery. I think a lot of people get really nervous about this structure because they're like, they're going to tell me no. It's not necessarily no, but it's like, how can we mitigate what we know is, gonna, is a problem here? Yeah. How can we do something better for, for the lungs? Do we, do we give a treatment before? Do we do, you know, are we going to do something different with our surgical approach? Um, do we need to give a round of CRRT before they even go to the OR? Um, just some discussions like that. That's what I've seen this structure do. And again, if people are doing it out there and have, can tell us what they're doing with it, that's great. Because mm -hmm. uh, I think it just gets the discussion going. Mm -hmm. And maybe there's an alternative, alternative therapy. Maybe we shouldn't do surgery. Maybe we'll do hybrid. Maybe we'll do that single mammary and let the cath lab do some stents. I mean, you know, what do you, how do you want to work with this patient? And I think it's helpful that way. Mm -hmm. yeah. But, you know, you can also get into the numbers and just kind of talk yourself out of things. And mm -hmm. I think a lot of people make that um, kind of pushback that, you know, we're risking ourselves out of doing anything, you know. And so that's, that's kind of the other side of the, of the sword. You know, you don't, you don't want to get into the point where no one gets treated. You don't want to be a one star. <laughs> okay, or a half a star. Well, but we are That's in bad. the business of helping patients, and so you, you're not likely going to have very many perfect patients, but you do want to do things that you think are going to be successful. I mean, mm -hmm. the patient's going in there hoping that you're going to help them, not that they're going to die. No, but, you know, there's a difference between a, 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 a community practice, medical center, hospital, that does standard cardiac standard uh, cabbages or whatever it may be, 
and either a tertiary or a quaternary facility that has multiple different resources and is more accustomed to managing these higher risk patients. So mm -hmm. I do think you have to take that into consideration. Well, sure. Right. Do you have the resources to deal with someone that's got an EF of 15 mm -hmm. and possibly might get, you know, complete revascularization mm -hmm. but still need an advanced heart failure therapy? Right. You know, do you have that available mm -hmm. at your institution? Um, I've had surgeons use this to kind of have a conversation with the cardiologist that I don't think I should do surgery on this patient. I don't think that's going to work out. Mm -hmm. And again, then you have to question, is it risk aversion or is it just doing what you think is the right thing for the patient? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, we have mm -hmm. to trust that it's that they're doing the right things for the patient. What, right. You know, right. I could, well, you know, see in an extreme situation where if this, you know, as this all becomes public knowledge and people are shopping for where they want to go, do we change our practice so our numbers, and then that gets into an ethical, I mean, there's a whole yeah. other Pandora box. Over and that's why we're going to be doing ethics, I think, uh, tomorrow. 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 Um, but I will tell you that sometimes, I mean, this is my opinion, uh, that risk aversion is potentially in the patient's best interest, you know? So I think that's, I mean, those are, those are very good questions, but, you know, we have to look at, you know, what, what are our, what are our individual capabilities in this practice? Mm -hmm. What are we used to doing? And is this patient falling out of our comfort zone? What we're yes, I can, they need right. the surgery, that's true, but are we the right people to do that right. surgery? And if they have no other option, I guess I could see, you know, the, uh, the dilemma there, you know, do we do it or not do it? Do we let them go home and be in pain or miserable and have no quality of life, or do we take the risk and do it, knowing that, uh, you know, they're high risk? Those are good questions. Mm -hmm. I don't know the answer. No, I wish I did know the answer, but I don't know the answer. You know, well, Joe is going to be giving a talk tomorrow on uh, ECMO, right? And, I think and it's Saturday. Oh, it's Saturday. Saturday, okay. And um, it would be great if we had something like this for ECMO. I mean, I know which patients to put on. Soo, as soon as you started doing this, I said, we need this for ECMO. We need <laughs> there, to start gathering it, the data for that. It does exist for ECMO. Yeah, the ELSA, ELSO registry uh, But is it's there, not but very many people participate in that, correct? Right. Oh. You have to really kind of so give this some lot of data. Data. There's, there's a lot of no, data behind this You have to be ELSO I mean, approved. about how many data uh, points for how center. long. No, there's a lot of Millions and millions. I mean, this is really accurate. It's a different topic, though. Because they will not bring out a new risk model until they've got the data behind it to support that the numbers that are being generated here have some validity. Mm -hmm. And you know, people can argue that against that if they want. But I mean, CAB was first, um, ABR followed, it, MVR was last in terms of getting um, risk model because a lot of times it's done in conjunction with something else. Mm -hmm. And how do you how do you tease out what is a mitral valve isolated? Um, a mitral valve uh, with a clip and is still a mitral valve. I mean an atrial clip. Like, you know, yeah. Or mitral clip. Right. The mitral clip. No, mean? no, the atrial, atrial clipping. An atrial cure. So if you do that with a mitral valve, it's still a mitral valve. If yes. you do PVI on the epicardial surface, that's still a mitral valve. So I mean, a lot of times you you get into the, kind of these adjunct things that are done at the same time. Yes. And when does that move it out of that category? Gotcha. There's, there's so mitral valve with 
atrial with the AF ablation or mitral valve with uh, 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 PFO uh, closure, single right, stitch, or, uh, or, primary. Uh, what am I trying to say? Appendage clipping, right? Isolation, whatever you want to call it. Right. Mm. So, just for reference, in 2018, there were 500 ELSO centers with 100,000 patients around the world. Yes, around the world. Well, but my point is, is if you're not an ELSO center, and correct me if I'm wrong, you don't report your data. There are a lot of people who are doing ECMO who are not reporting their data. So correct. the numbers, you know, where we saw the numbers for STS, it was a it was a pretty good amount of the actual heart centers out there reporting. My point about the ELSO was, it's hard to have um, numbers to uh, to show risk categories if you're not really getting all the data. That's true. I agree with you. I yeah. agree. So in that regard, I agree with you. Mm -hmm. Which is why we were talking. It's, these risk models are based on a lot of data, huge amounts of data, and you know mm -hmm. they, they really do go through a rigorous vetting and analysis so that you know, we're all using this, looking, oh, okay, but you know, is it real? I mean, is that true? Yeah. You know, because, you know, some surgeons will, you know, the smell test. I just look at them, or I just know they're yeah. not going to do well. The eyeball you know, test. You yeah, know, right, exactly. <laughs> you know, I, I just don't think so. You mm -hmm. know, and, and that's kind of subjective. Mm -hmm. You do, this gives you some objectivity to bring to the table in terms of, I just don't think this patient's going to do well. Mm -hmm. It, it kind of helps you quantitate it a little bit. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I, you know, I think, again, this, whatever you think about, STS, participating in STS, um, it's, it's really, hospitals and health systems are really closely measured and they've got metrics and they are being looked at and there are penalties for not meeting your benchmarks. And obviously if your hospital isn't doing well, um, that's where we work. So, mm -hmm. yeah. <laughs> now we, also, we, we need them. We do I need, need them. To, I need to just throw this out there. Hospitals actually pay the STS to be in this database. Is that correct? Yes. Yes. So that may be the, I don't know if that's true with ELSO. I, I don't know if hospitals know. have to pay to give them that data and then they get their score. I don't think that exists because they have the score. They John have a score. They have a rest score. Yeah, John, do you know? I was going to say that um, I've worked at a couple places that don't do the STS. And I thought that, I thought it was a requirement, but apparently it's voluntary, right? They it's, it's required that they participate in some sort of quality improvement program. Uh, most, most places, obviously 90% go straight to the STS because it's, it's there, it's, uh, they, get, they feel they get something out of it. Is but it required by Medicare? Who requires it? It's re in terms, well, I believe probably everybody for reimbursement, I would, I would say So insurance Medicare. companies as well as Medicare. But it doesn't have to be the STS. I think mm -hmm. most people just go there because they do feel like they're getting, they're putting data so in a database that, that they're going to get a lot of us, and they're going to get something out of it. Yeah, yeah, they're not joking around. I mean, it's a serious database. They're not. No, it's not. It's not just a a, a willy nilly, you know, uh, date. You know, like some kind of simple spreadsheet. It's a very complex. I mean, they do mm -hmm. some incredible work. I don't think there's any question about it. Um, is it 100% accurate? I mean, nothing's 100%. But is it a really good guide? Yeah, I think it is. Well, I, yeah. I think they go through a lot of validation. Well, and the more data you have, the more you can shake out the things that are likely 
outliers. Yeah, mm-hmm. as long as who's putting the data in and putting the. But data you know, in. you know, sometimes you have those those outliers, and they can really skew things if you have a small data set. But the larger your data set, then those outliers aren't going to matter much. You know, mm-hmm. right? That's it true. softens it. Yeah, and mm-hmm. you know they'll. For, for valve reporting, uh, they'll roll up three years' worth and aggregate it, you know, so it's just not that 50 in a year, yeah. you know, for smaller programs. They'll, ag- they'll aggregate it to kind of smooth that out. Yeah. Um, a lot of places will use their local database for, so for instance, you can be with a third-party vendor that you're putting all this data in, then, then it feeds up to STS. Mm-hmm. So within your own healthcare system or hospital, you've got a local database. It's not risk-adjusted, but you can query that for things for your section meetings. If, you know, if everyone's interested, blood products, you know, I'm sure everybody's interested in blood transfusion, mm-hmm. pull it. And then some people make their own dashboards out of this for their hospitals and show it on a monthly basis or, you know, have some sort of things going mm-hmm. on there so that you can track a trend. Because I will say turnaround on this data can be slow. Um, we're, you can put it in as often as uh, once a quarter to get analyzed. Um, it, the star ratings are only done on six months worth of new data, so they only come out twice a year. And, um, and sometimes it takes, like we're still waiting for 2020 mm-hmm. as, a, as a calendar year. Mm-hmm. Well, wow. we won't see that probably till next month. Very interesting. So, and what data is collected that's, you know, cardiopulmonary bypass? Mm-hmm. Is there points in there for perfusion? Mm-hmm. And there's, so for instance, uh, your times, clamp time, pump time. Uh, if your strategy was full bypass, was it uh, partial? Like did you do some, like for guys that are, or surgeons that are doing aortic valve cab, do they do their distals off pump and do they go on for their valve? Um, you can tease that out. Uh, blood products intra-op, post-op, if you're giving an antifibrinolytic. Um, if you're using cerebral oximetry, um, there's a lot of operative points. And in terms of actual perfusion points, mm-hmm. um, I think that's where Perform has tried to get in mm-hmm. on maybe doing something more quality for perfusion in general, mm-hmm. just for us. There is an anesthesia module uh, with the STS that asks a lot of questions about uh, cell saver given back, uh, fluids during the case. Uh, it's pretty new. It doesn't have a lot of uh, buy-in right now, mm-hmm. uh, but it will probably gain traction. Yeah, I was yeah, wondering if we they were going to add like practice, like temperature. Yep, lowest temp. Temperature, uh, hemoglobin, DO2, index, CO2, um, whether you ultrafiltrated, whether yeah. you did Z-buff, what your you know pressures were, your lowest yeah. pressures during the procedure for how long. Yeah, I think there's a lot of, but I see that in a lot of studies too. Mm-hmm. I see we use the pump. And that's it. <laughs> yeah, that's all they, they say. They don't ever talk about <laughs> In how they fashion. ran yeah. the pump. Right. And I think that that contributes, I believe, that that can change a, let's say, a mortality score from, let's say, 2.5% or 3% to 45 or 5 or 1.5% to 2 I think it makes that, I can think it can make that much of a difference depending on what you do. I believe that. But, and I, I believe that, too. But we don't have data to show it. And right. I think that's kind of where we get, we, we lose out maybe a little on in our profession. And I'll put that out to John and anybody that's listening in terms of how, how do we measure ourselves mm-hmm. in terms of how we're doing. Um, I think it's 
mostly subjective at this point. Obviously, if you're not making a huge mistake, yeah. <laughs> the mm -hmm. patient lives. Mm -hmm. <laughs> lives or yeah. dies. That's you're how we're grading it. Right. But, but what's going on in terms of some of these, uh, especially the electronic uh, medical record, where they're able to capture some of these feeds off our heart-lung machines and our, um, you know, our analyzers. How, how often are we staying at that pressure? Uh, what's the threshold? What, what do we set for our min and maxes? And then you've got a tool to have a very objective conversation with your team. <laughs> Yeah, you know, mm -hmm. in terms of uh, how you're running a case. Yes. And, I mean, yeah. like I mean, these and, hemoglobins of six are not good. And you can tie them to post-operative events. I mean, you could, you could make the case, yes. like you're saying. Everybody's all about oxygen, oxygen delivery and renal failure, um, and all about that. If you're keeping it above a certain level and certain certain types of patient populations, you might avoid it. Mm -hmm. And so, that's huge. If you could show somebody's um, STS post-op renal failure declining solely based on perfusion practice change, mm -hmm. it'd be pretty interesting. Yeah, that would, would be interesting. Would be. And I think you would see it. I'm confident. I believe it to my core. But you've got to start collecting it and measuring it. And yes. Yeah. Think From a lot of places, so everybody has to agree and comply and actually submit the data. Because if correct me if I'm wrong, but in the STS, if you have remarkably high scores, in other words, you're like a three-star, three-star plus, like you have really just incredible numbers, happen. they'll come audit you. <laughs> well, the audits are supposed to be random, <laughs> but they do, they do go looking because there, there's a lot of um, checks and balances in you know, trying to avoid garbage in, garbage mm -hmm. out. Yeah. in terms of abstraction. Yeah. You know, you cannot be, um, you know, cooking the books. Yeah. Yeah. So they, they, they really are going to try to make sure that's not happening. You would think that we'd all have the integrity to want to report all of our, you know, you can't just report your best cases. You've got to report all your cases. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It is required to participate that you have to record, you have to submit 100% of qualifying cases. Mm -hmm. You can't Leave your bad ones over here. That mm -hmm. hopefully in, no the box, ever, yeah, the, in the box. In the box. We noticed that you have a zero percent mortality, but what are all those refrigerated <laughs> trucks outside <laughs> the back door? Exactly. <laughs> Where are those patients? So you, there are audits. It's a very robust audit cycle. Mm. Um, I've been audited in the, our healthcare system at least five times. Wow. Wow. So wow. They, that's they, a lot. Well, I think the more facilities that are, they don't really know that in your health system you might have eight ah. facilities. They're all individual participants. Uh, so they might we got tagged for three one year. <laughs> you don't understand. We're all the yeah. same. This is all the same. But yeah. they don't they don't know they don't that. see it like that. See it like that. So very good. This was great. Yeah. This was great. Now I'm gonna put you on the spot. Uh oh, here we go. I'm gonna put both of them on the spot. Oh boy. Okay. Put John on the spot. You're no, I'm putting you <laughs> and Anne on the spot. No. <laughs> no, I am. I'm doing it. Can you focus the camera on Anne oh and Deb? Yeah, thank you. Um, so tomorrow we have the ethics in healthcare, and we have uh, no. That's that was today. No, that's tomorrow. That's we tomorrow. have the ethics in healthcare, and um, the uh, your uh, your your work with your your um, your uh, mission. Uh, mission outreach. Oh, nice. Yes. Yes. And yours at eleven, and yours at eleven thirty. 
And let's see, John, we have John, you at 9 o'clock. Now, I know you're going to be coming in via Skype. Um, so if I send a car to pick you up, would you, could, you, could you make it back tomorrow? No, I'm coming back tomorrow. Good. I'm yeah. going to drive to the ends of the world. But yes. That's yes. not what we say on air. It's really close. It's just a hop, skip, and a jump. It's just a hop, skip, and a jump. Is that the phrase? That's what we say. So, Anne, so you're at 11. Um, how does it look for you? So far, so good. So far, so good. Okay. Fingers David, crossed. did you hear that? Yeah. Okay, you could you could focus that you could go widescreen with everybody. Okay, put it back on them. I want to see how red they are online. <laughs> yeah, that's good. Okay, um, John, you have any closing remarks? I'm gonna let you close this out because you have been so incredibly patient, sitting in that big giant leather chair, and uh, 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 been here all day. And uh, you you I've only shown you a little bit of love. So I'm going to show you all the love now and let you close this out and uh, discuss what we're doing tomorrow. Well, it was, it was awesome. I hope the audience enjoyed it as much as I did. And uh, I'm sure they did. We have callers and emails all the time, right? And uh, tomorrow I'm, I'm going to be doing the uh, BB ECMO without anticoagulation. Does it actually improve outcomes? And... Um, if you need to rearrange the schedule at all, Joe, I can move that to Saturday just as easy, actually. No, we're going to stick with the schedule as is. I mean, unless, it, unless that's what you need. 9 to 9.30 is perfect. Tomorrow. I'll be, I'll be at work. It, it should work out okay, but you never know, so we'll see. If it doesn't, I'll just move with mine and move you you after me. We'll fig, we will figure okay. it out. Okay. And if that's okay, unless that's not what you want. No, that's fine. I mean, a Saturday would actually be better for me, but I, I should, it should work out okay. All right, we'll you know? just we'll just make it work. We'll just make it work. And right. uh, but I can't thank you enough. Again, you've been so incredibly patient. So I appreciate you so very much. You do so much for this program, and our and like I said, I think you were incredibly patient today. You don't even get a sandwich. We have Jimmy John sandwiches, oh, soup. Nice. We got all <laughs> kinds of stuff, um, and I feel really bad that I cannot send you one. Well, you know, it's uh, 3 o'clock here, and I had breakfast at 6 o'clock this morning. So. He's hungry. He wants you to wrap this up. All right. Well, no, he's wrapping it up. Oh. <laughs> You're the one wrapping it up. Well, does he have the well, information well, to wrap it up? He does. You guys did an awesome job. I'm, I'm so glad to see Deb and uh, Ann again. It's been so, so many years. <laughs> nice yeah. to see you. Uh, I don't know if you were here earlier, Deb, but Ricky Garcia from Puerto Rico called in. Oh, he did. I missed it. Yeah. Yep. That'll oh, be good, too. That was he a does, nice reunion. He? Oh my goodness. He's a good fella. He's, he's a, a good fella. Yeah, sticking it a... sticking it out down there. He's been through the hurricane, just total yeah. devastation, COVID. He... I don't know how they do it down there on that island. He was he and Sal were classmates. Oh. Is yeah. that right? They were in the same class and there was only I think five in their class that ended up finishing. They were were was he your junior? He was Two juniors back, but we overlapped for about a month. I overlapped yeah. with Sal and yeah. Ricky for about a month. And yeah. by the way, Char Charlie Reed overlapped for his last month or so. Yeah. And um, I, I could close with a comment about Charlie Reed if you want. <laughs> Do it. Do it. I'll sum up Charlie Reed in, in one sentence. Perfection is the only option. Yeah. That was his attitude. He yeah. must be perfect in an imperfect world. Anything less is unacceptable. Yeah. Wow. That's right. I, you know, I can see that in Charlie. I can see Charlie saying that. 
Um, I could add another sentence, but I won't. Um, <laughs> you can always add something. I met Charlie in 1977, 1977 in Tucson, Arizona. Mm -hmm. I won't tell you where he took me. It was quite interesting. He smoked a lot, and uh, he got me on. He got me smoking. I had quit, but I started smoking again. So, uh, so with that said, uh, tomorrow we have anticoagulation-free ECMO. We have mechanics and CRRT, normal pressures, all this stuff, and how to integrate it into your ECMO circuit. Uh, and uh, Anne on the ethics of healthcare. Deb on her medical mission work and the value of giving back. Um, and then we're doing. And you're going to really enjoy this. We're doing some really interesting stories. Uh, we have a, a nurse practitioner here that was at the time an ICU nurse talking about her management of her interaction with families of patients that are on ECMO but unrecoverable. Decisions are going to have to be made. Tammy is going to be talking about a patient who was unrecoverable and uh, it's going to be a very sensitive topic for you, actually, when you find out why, who they married uh, while on ECMO. Is that one? And uh, Dr. Duvall uh, from, uh, from Houston Methodist, the Woodlands, is going to come. He's going to be here, and he's going to be discussing what the law and ethics are from their perspective on dealing with patients who are unrecoverable, but the family is like, I don't want you to withdraw. I don't want you to stop. You know, these are very complex topics, and I think you're going to really tee this up. Both of you, you know, you're going to, you guys are going to really be sort of laying the stage for this because you probably meant to deal with this out of the country and other places with some pretty sick people. Mission work is not easy work. They're not the healthiest of candidates. And then Patrick is going to finish it up with perfusion accidents. Which, you know, somebody said the other day, you're only as good as your last 30 seconds of a case. And unfortunately, that's a reality in our profession, I think. Mm -hmm. So, we did make up for our short time yesterday. <laughs> and Retro, American Board. <laughs> She's and, not uh, going to report you. We're, no. good, we're, <laughs> we're back in good standing. <laughs> and uh, we'll see you all tomorrow morning at 08. 45 for my opening remarks and John at 9 o'clock. See y'all. Thanks, John. Thank you. Bye. Thank you, everyone. Bye, John. Bye. See you tomorrow.